Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. changed? What, what was it that happened? Um, what, uh, what kind of scar is it? Again, I've, I've broken a bone. I've, I've gotten a bruise. I, I know what happened then, but in this moment of abuse, it feels like something changed, and, and I don't think I can put it into words. What what is it that needs to be fixed? What can I do? Uh, what kinds of things could I participate in to engage with, to, to do that would somehow help with whatever it was that happened? When will, when will time heal this wound? I mean, time heals all wounds, right? Uh, when is it... When is it going to get around to this one? Um, now, those are the, the kind of questions uh, that as we, as we start with this first hour and we're discussing the subject of understanding the disruption uh, that I want us to engage with, uh, to understand what went on uh, when abuse occurred. Uh, now, hopefully we will do a good job of creating a picture of that so that you have a better understanding and that seems less confusing. Uh, but I think you, you realize that in, in a three-hour presentation, we are, we're not going to answer all of those questions. Uh, I think the, maybe a good visual for what we hope to do in our time together uh, is maybe when, uh, if you have children and you take them to the zoo, uh, and one of the first things that you do when you go to the zoo is you get on the train. Uh, and, and you take a trip around the zoo, and, and you want to make sure all the animals are in their cages, uh, and you want to see where they're at, uh, so that you can get an idea of, of what you're going to do as you take that journey around the zoo. Uh, I think that's what we can hope for in our time here together, is for us to get an idea of kind of what happened in the past, what was that disruption that occurred, uh, and what are those things that we can do to bring hope and restoration in the future so that as we leave here, uh, we have a better idea of the journey in front of us. Now, uh, if we're going to talk about a journey, uh, I think the, the most natural question for us to ask is, is where do we begin? Uh, and I would begin by saying thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for having the courage. Uh, thank you for having the character. Uh, thank you for having the faith and trust uh, to take a step to say, I, whether I'm here for myself or for someone else, I, I want to learn how God can bring healing and restoration to this area of suffering. Uh, and as you're here, let me say, uh, if, if during the course of this presentation uh, you feel like you've had enough, uh, whether you're here with us live or whether you're one of the people joining us on video, uh, it is fine for you to pause the video, uh, or if when we take a break, if you wanted to step out and get some fresh air and just continue to your car, uh, we video this so that you have that available to you. Uh, that is not a problem. That is not offensive. Uh, you, uh, if you experienced abuse, you did not get to choose how much was enough uh, during the time when those events were occurring. Uh, and that was part of the trauma that you experienced. Uh, we do want you to know that you have voice and you have choice in that, uh, in this part of the process. And we want to create this resource in such a way uh, that, that you realize that. Now, another thing that I would say in terms of where do we begin, uh, you are not alone. Uh, oftentimes, abuse is something that feels very alone because it happens in privacy where nobody else is seeing. That's kind of the, the nature of what goes on. And we don't talk about it. And so 
we begin to wonder, am I the only one? Who else has experienced this? How would I know? Uh, the unfortunate reality is that one in four women and one in six men uh, will experience some form of sexual abuse before the age of 18. Uh, what that means is that 40% of our church and our community and our world uh, have experienced sexual abuse. And that's why I think it's so important for us to begin to engage with this subject, to open up the conversation and to begin to look at how does God step into this area of hurt? Uh, because it is something that is, is more common than, than I think any of us wish was the reality. Now, I hope in the midst of this seminar uh, that you find your voice. That one of the often overlooked effects of abuse is that we lose our voice. We say no, and it doesn't stop. We begin to feel like we're powerless to affect change, that our words don't mean or do anything. And sometimes we're silenced by the direct threats that happen uh, after the abuse. If you tell someone, nobody will believe you. If you tell someone, they'll take me away and you and your mother will be all alone. There will be nobody there to care for you. They'll send me to jail. And how do you think that will make you feel? Maybe you were silenced by threats. Or maybe after the threats, you were silenced by the sense of shame. You, you get past the threats and you think, I'm going to tell somebody what? I would have to reveal this about me. I, I don't want to say this to anybody. My own sense of shame and, and dirtiness becomes something that I, my, my sense of shame takes away of my voice. And then maybe after threats and shame, there's just a lack of resources. Who would I tell? I mean, who do you talk to about these things? Nobody brings this up. It, it doesn't feel like there's ever a good time or a natural point in the conversation. And so even if I get past the threats and I get past the shame, the lack of resources can often be the point where we say, I lost my voice there. And that's why as a church, we want to bring this into the forefront to create resources to say that there is an avenue to have these conversations now, another thing that I would want you to, to hear here in the beginning is that you're in a safe place on a hard journey. That is very important to us. It is a hard journey, and I don't want to minimize that in any way, but I also want you to feel like this is a safe place where you'll be heard, where you'll be believed, where the things that you experience can be understood, and there is a freedom to talk about that. I very much want this to be a safe place on a hard journey. Now, in, in getting into this, Diane Langberg helps us get started. She says, to fail to speak is awful. To live in silence, to know that nobody knows is awful. But to speak is equally awful. Because the telling makes the story more real. And part of what I hope in terms of us just having this conversation out loud with people here is that you can begin to hear elements of your story, of your experience. And you can say, yeah, I felt that. I thought that. That's what it was like for me. Somebody understands this is, this is less echoing in my own mind, in my own soul. Now, one of our big goals for our time together is that you would learn to tell your story so that you can live one whole life and see God enter your story redemptively. It's exhausting to live two separate lives. One with real events, things that really did happen. Real events that maybe nobody else knows about. And then another world with real people. And they ask you, how was your weekend?
and your mind immediately goes to the real, but it's just not the place to talk about that. So you say, fine. Um, and trying to live where I have to explain, where somebody says, what's wrong? Maybe it's a scene in a movie. Uh, maybe it's a news story like the Jerry Sandusky case or something like that. And it just moves you and they're asking, what, what's wrong? Why are you upset? And here's a real person asking me a question that's tracing back to these real events. And I just feel like I've got to keep these two worlds separated. Uh, and that is exhausting. And because of that, people ask you questions like, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Why do you feel that way? And there's this sense of judgment. This sense of nobody gets me. This sense of I am broken and distant from everything else that's going on. And I hope this is a place where we can begin to, to live one story. Where there's not real events and real people. But I can live in one life. And see God enter into that redemptively. Now to start on that, I think a natural question for us to begin with is what is sexual abuse? Uh, Dan Lingberg again. She says sexual abuse occurs whenever a person, child or adult, is sexually exploited by an older, more powerful person for the satisfaction of the abuser's needs. I would start just by cautioning on that word needs there. We can almost hear that word and it legitimizes in some way. Uh, I can promise you that is not at all uh, what Diane Langberg is saying or alluding to there. It is very much not the position uh, of this seminar. But uh, it, sexual abuse is just when somebody by age or other uh, piece of power leverages that to sexually exploit another person. Uh, that, that can be verbal. Um, nobody has to touch anybody for sexual abuse to occur. It can be uh, somebody who's growing up and as their body matures, uh, the way that their body is spoken about is unwholesome. It is exploiting. It is adding thoughts and categories and, and just things that a young person should not have to deal with. Or maybe it's two parents and one of them had an affair and the one who was betrayed in the sense of trying to get the child on their side is just going into way too much detail about what happened. And there's just this hypersexualization that occurs. Or uh, sexual abuse can be visual. It can be the exposure to pornography and being asked to watch that and giving commentary on that at a young age. It can be the child who grows up in a home where the, the parents are, uh, one or both of them, very sexually exploitive and maybe on a party scene. And I've heard of people saying, I, I, I would walk out and there would be adults in my house and they would either be having sex or they would be passed out naked around the home and I just I was aware of and it just I didn't know what to do with that um, and then there is physical what we would probably most of us think of as sexual abuse proper now we begin to ask ourselves how does this affect somebody uh, and there's lots of ways that it can affect someone uh, depression if you live in that kind of environment where you don't know when it's going to happen next, how much can life have a purpose? Just tying together day-to-day -day events as if I'm pursuing something, after something, it, it just all begins to feel kind of pointless. Or memory difficulty. Again, a a child who doesn't know what's going to happen from night to night in their home and they have to go to school the next day and take a spelling test. Spell fair. F-A-I-R. I don't know. I mean, how much does that matter? Again, I don't know if I'm going to be safe and you want me to remember when the test is going to be and when we had a breakfast appointment. It just, 
It's hard to keep up with those things when I'm trying to keep up with safety. Trust. You know, most of us learn trust implicitly just by home being a safe place that we can return to. And the closer the person is who we experienced abuse, the harder and harder it is for trust to be a word that makes any sense at all. Uh, Gastrointestinal problems. Uh, The level of anxiety when you are always on guard, trying to predict the unpredictable, trying to know what it is that's going to make you safe when really none of this is obeying rules at all and just having your stomach tied in knots constantly. Uh, that, uh, that has an effect on your gastrointestinal system. Now, substance abuse. If I can't have safe, give me numb. I'd much rather have safe. Give me safe any day. But if I can't have safe, just let me feel nothing. Let me escape. Can I just push mute on life? Uh, Dissociation. If I can't escape physically, let me escape mentally. Uh, Again, dissociation is kind of a big word. Uh, It just means kind of when when we step away for ourselves mentally. Uh, Most of us have had a dissociative dream, and that doesn't mean anything's wrong. Uh, It's just one of those dreams where you're not necessarily dreaming from your own eyes, uh, but you're watching you from a distance, and you're watching you in the dream. Uh, One person that I counseled who was in a a time in her past lived in a very unsafe apartment. Uh, Her comment that reveals what dissociation was She said, when I would hear a banging at my door, I would just lay down on the floor, take my clothes, look up in the ceiling, and lose myself in the dots. Almost as if I was watching myself from that distance and what was going on. It's one of those things where I think God gives us this gracious way to kind of separate from intense pain. Uh, Nightmares. It gets to the point where it doesn't even feel like my sleep is safe. You know, sleep is normally this oasis that I can get to and just kind of get away from the world for six, seven, eight, nine hours. But yet, whether it's a recurrence of the abuse or just the darkness of the dreams, it begins to feel like that's not even safe. Anxiety and flashbacks. Again, just that different triggers. It feels like my entire life is booby-trapped. Again, it could be something on the television it could be words that somebody says. It could, be, it could be being home alone. And again, that just makes me feel crazy. Because normally when somebody's home alone, they feel like they're resting and relaxed, right? But, but when I grew up, if I was home alone, whoever came through that door next determined whether my night was going to be hell or whether it was going to be okay. And so even just being home alone can feel like the kind of thing that generates anxiety or a flashback in a way that, that I just don't understand. Self-injury. Again, one of those things that, that oftentimes doesn't even make sense to the person who's doing it. I don't know why hurting myself, something like cutting, makes me feel better. And again, we'll talk about it here in, a, in another point, but... But just one of the things that happens at a biological level is uh, when we injure ourselves, there is this release of endorphins that creates this moment of relief. Um, Now, uh, what I would say about these things uh, is that these these are rational responses to sexual abuse. They're not necessarily healthy. They're not healthy. But they are rational They make sense. And so if you could hear me say anything at this point, hear me say you're not crazy. You're hurt. You're confused. You're overwhelmed. Um, But these kinds of things that oftentimes don't make sense and are very unsettling even to the person who's doing them, they're not crazy. That's actually one of the aspects of abuse. Not just sexual abuse, but any kind of abuse or exploitation. If we ask what happens during abuse, 
Well, one of the things that happens is it limits our number of good options. I mean, when you're being abused, how many good options are available to you? Not many at all. And abuse multiplies our number of bad options. The number of things that would be uh, unhealthy or destructive. And you add on top of that, uh, that for at least 40% of the population, when they go through this, they're still a child. And they're thinking about this with the categories and the life experiences and the resources of a child. So they're young and they have a very limited number of good choices and a broad array of things that would be unhealthy. And it, again, it's rational while not necessarily healthy. And part of our goal is just to go, how do I get around this? What else can I do? Uh, that's part of what I want us to explore. Uh, but before we go there, uh, I think a, another kind of question, just in understanding the disruption, is what kind of family is it where abuse occurs? Now, a lot of our presentation will be about uh, abuse that happens to children. Uh, that's not the totality of it. Uh, because there is sexual assault that happens not just to children, but we'll kind of build up from there in the way that we approach this. Uh, but the first thing that Diane Langberg tells us is that no type of family is exempt uh, from abuse. Again, it's, it happens in poor families and middle class families and rich families. It happens in families across all ethnic groups. It happens in Christian families and in non-Christian families and families of any other faith system. It happens in single parent families and blended families and nuclear families. Um, you know, we could do a Dr. Seuss book about all the different kinds of families because it just, there is no way to say it just happens in one type of family. Now she goes on to say, until you state what you know, you cannot find out what is a lie and what is the truth. And as long as lies remain hidden, they will exert a powerful influence over your life. And can we remember, if we're talking about children, this is all they know. This is normal for a child who grows up uh, in a home or a family uh, where this kind of thing occurs. Uh, if you'll allow me to tell... Uh, maybe kind of a, a humorous first-person story of just trying to illustrate this dynamic. Uh, I grew up in a very small town. I grew up 30 minutes from the nearest McDonald's. Uh, Summit Church has more members than my hometown did citizens. Uh, and so we were just very country folk. Uh, the first year that I was dating my wife, uh, we went to her family uh, for Christmas. And they were in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and they were... Uh, accountants and lawyers and uh, honestly it was just intimidating and I'm there and I'm trying to make conversation and, and I noticed that different people cook uh, you know each meal it wasn't the same person cooking and so I'm trying to say something nice and I say that's nice that you know different people in the family cook different meals and you know, again they're trying to get to know me and so they're like who cooks at your family at Christmas now that was an easy question Normally, Nanny cooks biscuits and gravy on the old wood stove, unless Uncle Donnie kills a coon, and then we barbecue it. And no sooner had those words come out of my mouth than it just struck me, that's not normal. Um, and everybody's looking around the room to see if they have permission to laugh. Um, and, but it was all I knew. It's what I grew up in. That was Christmas. It was good Christmas if you had barbecue coon. It was a good Christmas if you didn't. But that was kind of the options. Um, and for a young person who grows up in an environment of abuse, it's just what they know. It's normal. Um, now Diane says, in order to preserve the illusion that their parents are safe people, and she's going to use a concept here uh, she calls double think. Children find it more powerful to see themselves as the evil one. You can think about being a child in an abusive environment. I've got, a, I've got a choice. I'm either going to recognize 
that I am always unsafe or I am occasionally abused. Either my parents are safe and good people. Again, they're the ones that tell me I've got to go to bed. They're the ones that tell me to study for my test. They're the ones that tell me not to hit my brother or sister. Lots of the other adults in my world tell me those same kind of things. And so I want to believe that they're good and safe because if they're not, then I am always unsafe. Again, another example of this kind of thing. It, if you think of a soldier who's at war and they know at any moment a siren may come on and they need to run to the, the bomb barracks. But when they're, when they're on base, they can be playing cards and telling jokes at the same time that they know what everything that's going along doesn't fit that at all. That's double think. That's why somebody can grow up and, and they meet somebody and they begin to date them and they say, I really do think I love them, but they scare me and I don't feel safe with them at all. And I can just hold on to these two contradictory things because I lived a life where I had to do that. Now, what are some characteristics of family where abuse occurs? Often, uh, and I would almost put always, uh, they have multiple problems. Uh, But oftentimes, if I could give you a visual, because there are these climactic experiences where abuse occurs, we think that's what's wrong. It's almost if I asked you, if I said, in your mind's eye, picture mountains, Chances are what you see when I ask you to look at mountains in your mind's eye is snow-capped peaks. Now, snow-capped peaks don't float. There's a lot of mountain underneath snow-capped peaks. In families where abuse occurs, abuse may be those pinnacle experiences, but usually there's a lot of dysfunction underneath that, that because it's not the climactic experience, we think uh, less broken is healthy, is normal. And so we accept a lot of things that we ought not accept. Um, Now, families where abuse occurs are also very rigid in their relational roles. You know, wherever there's secrets, we have to be very rigid. Um, I've never worked for the CIA. Again, if I had, I wouldn't be able to tell you, but you'll just have to trust me. I've never worked for the CIA. But it's a place where they have a lot of secrets. And my guess is, within the CIA, they have very rigid roles and protocols. Things you can do and can't do, because when you have secrets, you have to be rigid. And part of what we recognize is that that abuse is not just a tragedy, it's a crime. And families know that, and they have to treat it as such, and there becomes secrets. They require very rigid roles. And that creates confusion for everybody's role. Because we're compensating for what is out of balance. There are things that obviously need to be done. If there's going to be any sense of healthy or safety. But we're not going to do that. And so we have to compensate in all of these other ways. uh, That creates a lot of confusion about roles. And then there's also... Uh, a lot of destructive messages because the abuser has to force you to live within their lie. They have to create a world where that lie is safe and it's not going to get out. Um, And so the destructive messages, nobody's going to believe you. This is your fault. Why do you make me do these things to you? This is just what daddies do. This is normal. This is play. All of the things that would just be very destructive messages that I have to get you to live within this lie or things are going to get out and it's going to be dangerous. Um, Now, the next thing we'll look at is stages of sexual abuse. And here, any time we talk stages, I always walk tentatively. Uh, Because rarely does anything follow the kind of rules uh, that we would give in stages. Uh, But what I want you to gain from this more than anything is the ability to see that in the vast majority of cases, abuse begins 
before abuse occurs. What we think of as that moment of abuse wasn't the point in time when unhealthy and destructive began. In the vast majority of cases, it begins well before that. And you say, how do you know that? Because only 11% of abuse is by a stranger. That means in 89% of the cases, there is some sense of development, some sense of progress, of process. Uh, Now, 29% of abuse is by an immediate family member, somebody who lives uh, under the same roof. And 60% is by a known non-family member. Now, how does this begin to occur? And again, take this tentatively, and if this doesn't fit your experience, then just go, what was this like for me? Uh, It usually begins with the development of intimacy and secrecy. Uh, That uh, the child is selected uh, and given preferential treatment. Um, Maybe it's going to get ice cream. Maybe it's getting to go back to the adult's room. And and the twisted part of this for the one being abused is most kids like feeling big. What kid doesn't like to get to go on a special ice cream trip? Again, my own two boys, if we're doing a project in the living room and they don't can't watch television in there and we send them up to our room to watch cartoons, when they get to go to mom and dad's room and be on the big bed and watch cartoons in there, there's just something that feels special about that. And that sense that somehow this felt special, this felt good, becomes part of what they use to take responsibility and think, maybe I did participate in this in some way. And then physical contact that feels appropriate. Um, And I think here we have to differentiate between sensual and sexual. Again, I just ask the question, what kid doesn't like to cuddle, to be held, to have their hair stroked? Things that are very innocent. Things that can and should be done in ways that are appropriate and affirming. But those are the kinds of points that become entry points for abuse for somebody who has ill intentions. And and as Dan Allender says, the tragedy of abuse is that the enjoyment of one's body becomes the basis of the hatred of one's soul. And particularly if you have a child who's in a, an environment of neglect and the abuser is one of the few people who takes the time to give them attention and make them feel special. And so in some ways, just kind of that craving for closeness and, and they return to, and all of a sudden they begin to, I just, I don't know why I kept going back. And that wouldn't be a point of responsibility, but it's the kinds of things that tends to make this very confusing and and hurtful, and then sexual abuse proper, uh, that kind of the moment where, or moments where the abuse occurs, and then the after stage, where the abuse is maintained via secrecy, threats, um, or privileges, where either there are bribes to remain silent, there are threats of what would be told or done, and, and there is the whole after a part which again, as we've already alluded to and we'll talk about several more times, is just that sense of losing my voice. That I could talk and anything would be heard, believed, or changed. Now one of the effects that hopefully as you begin to see this is just the confusion of language that occurs. Uh, Diane Langberg again. She says, children depend on adults to tell them the truth. Children need to be able to trust adults to name things correctly. I mean, think about it. You know, for a kid, it's the adults in their life who define good and bad, right and wrong, appropriate and inappropriate, um, tasteful and distasteful. What is love? What is the good use of influence and what is manipulation about relationships and how to use influence? What is innocence? Again, what is appropriate? How much freedom is there to explore your world uh, without 
being uh, attacked or without being uh, scolded. It's adults who teach kids about their bodies. What are body parts, parts called? What does it mean to be a boy and a girl, a man or a woman? Um, about their sexual identity. What it means to be confident. How much confidence it's appropriate to have. Creativity and initiative. These are the kinds of things that a child is dependent upon the adults in their world. And if there's an adult in their world who should be able to be trusted, who is beginning to abuse and manipulate that child, all of these kinds of categories that we use as the baseline for so many other relationships and endeavors just get skewed and distorted. Now she goes on to say, if prior knowledge is a lie, then all incoming knowledge will get filtered through that lie. And the lie will stand. This is especially so if the lie was repeated many times and accompanied by high emotional intensity. And if you think about recurring sexual abuse, that is something where many lies are told, either directly or indirectly, and there's this emotional intensity to reinforce it. If I could just give you a maybe a more innocent and, and a conversation example that we could, we could talk about. Imagine a, a child and they've got one of those blocks where there's, uh, it's kind of a cube and you've got the shaped blocks and you're learning what a circle and a star and a square is. Uh, and the child has the square and they're putting up the square hole and the adult says, that's right, it's a square, you've got it. Turn it, turn it, you got it, that's good. Push it in, good job. The child is learning a lot. They're learning to name things that it's safe to try. Um, their kind of this exploring and learning process is, is okay. Now imagine in that moment that after the child slides the block in, for whatever reason, the parent just blows up and slaps the child and begins to scold them. What are you doing? Why would you do that? Why do you make me respond to you this way? Do you think I like doing this? If people knew that I did this to you, they would take me away and you would never have a parent. You would have to be able to completely fend for yourself. There is no way you could do that. You just need to get your act together and not have me act this way. A child learned a lot then too. They... They learned it's not safe to explore. They learned that adults get to say and do whatever they want to do. They learned cause and effect don't go together well. Anything I do could be explosive. And they also learned that square pegs don't go in square holes. And that's the kind of experience that's being introduced into the life of a child when abuse occurs. Um, Diane goes on to say, chronic abuse also results in the abandonment of hope. The letting go of hope produces a restricted kind of thinking. Here I would say it's, it's a survivalist kind of thinking. Not, not free thinking, not curious thinking, not hopeful thinking, not it's safe to dream kind of thinking, but thinking where hope is dangerous. Where every time I begin to allow myself to get hope, it just becomes the height by which I fall. And I just, I realize life is safer when I keep my feet on the ground, when I don't hope, because it just, it hurts too much to hope again and fall and get hurt. Now, as we hear these things, one of the questions that probably comes to mind is, is what is it that, what kind of things go into determining the degree of impact that we experience in sexual abuse? Another quote from Diane Lingberg. She says, abuse shapes you. Abuse results in a life lived in reaction to, in protection against, in defiance of, a horror you would like to forget. And 
again, it just it becomes this marking point of life that we don't understand that seems to shape everything that we touch, even when we wish it didn't. Um, and so what kinds of things contribute to the degree of impact? Uh, frequency. How, how often did it happen? Was it a one-time event? Was it something that happened sporadically and I never knew when it was going to happen? Did it happen uh, every time I went over to the babysitter's house or every time I went for music lessons? Again, as we go through some of these degree of impacts, let me, let me caution you against something that I think many of us are prone to do. We would hear these things and our tendency is to find things that weren't true and then say, mine wasn't that bad. Again, we'll have 10 things here, and you might say, I only hit three of the 10. See, that's just 30%. Mine's not that bad. Hear me say, suffering is not a competitive sport. The fact that the Holocaust happened does not make the suffering that you and I go through any less. One of the things I'm fond of saying, if you come to any of the events that I do, just because somebody else got hit by a truck doesn't mean my knee surgery hurts any less. That's not the kind of thing uh, that suffering is. And oftentimes we'll use a statement like mine wasn't that bad as a form of silencing ourselves. That self-inflicted losing of my voice. And so as we go through this list, please don't use it that way. So there's frequency, there's duration. Um, you know, is it something that began when I was eight and didn't end till I was 14? Uh, the longer the duration, uh, typically greater the impact. Age range. How old was I when it happened? Again, at any age, it's a trauma. But the younger I was, the less life experience that I had, the, the more it affects stages of my development that were disrupted in terms of emotional development and social development and cognitive development. The larger the uh, impact tends to be. Uh, related closeness. How much should I have expected to be able to trust this person? The, the closer the relationship, you know, was it a parent, aunt, uncle, grandparent, uh, babysitter, teacher, stranger, friend, neighbor? How, how close was that relational um, connection, that biological or social bond, because that's going to strongly impact uh, those aspects of trust. Uh, if there was penetration, uh, that is something that increases the impact. Uh, was there violence uh, involved in it? Willingness. Again, we talked about what kid doesn't want to cuddle. If there was any point where I asked for ice cream, and all of a sudden, I begin to feel like something like that, even though I know I didn't know, um, it, it makes the impact larger. Arousal. Did I, did I in any way begin to enjoy it? And that in no way implies responsibility, but it's just kind of the biological fact that our body is made to react in certain ways. And if you hit areas that are erogenous zones and they begin to become stimulated at some point, it just, it feels like my own body betrayed me. Um, it, was it ignored? Were there people who should have seen that the signs were obvious and nothing was done? Or almost maybe worst of everything on the page. Did I say something and I was not believed? Did I say this is what's going on? And, and the adult in my world that I spoke to said, you shouldn't talk about them that way. I know them. They wouldn't do that. Again, I think this is where uh, David in the Psalms uh, had something of this experience of not being believed. Uh, by people who were very close and should have. Uh, Psalm 27, uh, 9 and 10. He's crying out to God. He says, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. 
but the Lord will take me in. I mean, there's that sense of something he came to his parents about that should have been believed, but he was forsaken. And it's one of those things that that greatly impacts uh, the degree of impact. Um, Amy Carmichael, she says, those who know the truth of these things will know that we have understated it, carefully toned it down, because it cannot be written in full. It could neither be published nor read, but oh, it had to be lived. And what you may not even be able to hear had to be endured by little girls and by little boys. Now if we say, what is the point of this? It's, in many ways, what I want you to gain from this is what are the things that I would want to share? Not that I want to, want to, but would be helpful for me to share. What are the kinds of things that I would need to disclose with a counselor or a pastor or a friend that would be, this is the kind of thing that would help them understand and help me understand why this affects me as much as it does. Now another part of understanding the disruption is learning what it means to live in an abused body. Now the passage that I have here is 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, And and just a, a quick word of kind of caution here. Uh, This is a passage that speaks to sin. Uh, Abuse is a form of suffering. Uh, I think as a church, we are much more gifted at speaking to and applying the gospel to areas of sin than we are to suffering. My point is not at all to bring those two things together. They are different experiences that God speaks to in different ways. But I want us to draw a principle Uh, to see something here about why sexual abuse affects us the way that it does. And and what we see in this passage is that there is something about sexuality that when it's attached to anything makes its impact greater. And so we see that in the case of, of sexual sin. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And so what we would just take from that is if there's something about sexuality and sin that makes it uniquely damaging and we would want to avoid it for that reason, that in the area of suffering, there is something that sexuality would bring to the impact of that suffering that would allow, that would mean that God would view us with a particular degree of compassion uh, and that we would want to address this um, in, in ways that are very sensitive to that. And so some of the lies that are frequently there when we, when we live in a body that has been abused. You know, one lie is that you're only a body and nothing else. There was a documentary I was watching on the subject of sex trafficking and, and talking about the men who would uh, abuse uh, these children, these girls, I thought the statement that was made was particularly chilling but true. The narrator said, these men aren't having sex. They're masturbating in girls' bodies. And just the fact that I get reduced to a body, that's all I am. I am there to be consumed and used. Or maybe the lie is, my body is the enemy. My body is what allowed me to be hurt. And it, again, it's kind of weird. I call, I might call this my water bottle. And at the same time, I call this my hand. As if both of these belong to me. There is my soul, my person, that immaterial part of what I am, that that this body belongs to me. And and if my body's what allowed me to be hurt, I almost feel like my body betrayed me. Or maybe I begin to view my body as worthless trash, like aluminum foil or saran wrap that just got wanted up and thrown over in the corner. And I just, I kind of feel like, you know, even if you unwrap it, it's never going to be like it was supposed to be again. Or maybe I view my gender as the problem. And there's that plaguing question, why me? Why was it that they selected me of of the others that they could have abused? And 
particularly when the abuser is the same gender as the one being abused. Uh, there can be a lot of questions about homosexuality and same-sex attraction. Uh, now, I'm not saying that's the only cause for same-sex attraction, uh, but when you look at the statistics and research on the subject, um, among those who struggle with same-sex attraction, there is a disproportionately high incidence of sexual abuse as compared to the general population. And it's one of those places where, again, sexuality gets introduced at a very young age oftentimes. And the only people now that I have these sexualized thoughts and experience that I interact with are generally my same age. And the person who abused me was my same gender. And I, I just begin to wonder, is that what's going on? Now, what are the truths that begin to replace this? And I will say that each of these truths begin to be increasingly personal. You know, the first truth is that God made your body and said it was good. Actually, if we, if we look to the text in, in Genesis 1, he said it was very good. Now, more than that, God chose to live in a body. That, that miracle of the incarnation. God did not view flesh as something that was dirty and disdainful, that he would stay far, far away from. But the word became flesh. And more than the fact that God just took on a body, God is willing to live in your body. That at the point of salvation, when we trust Him for the forgiveness of our sins, He comes to live within us. He does not do this work of hope and restoration from a distance. He comes and honors the body that He is restoring, the person and He does that uh, at that closest level of being with you. Um, now one, one final subject here in this area of understanding the disruption. And it's one that, that is hard and confusing for a lot of people. It's the, the topic of memory. As we talk about this, we'll, we'll look at several points here. Most of these are, are taken from Diane Lingberg. You know, the first thing that I would say about memory is that there's no set of symptoms which automatically indicate a history of sexual abuse. Now, one of the things that that means is that nobody's going to be able to look at you and know you were abused. Oftentimes, there's that sense of, I just feel like people are going to look in my eyes, the window of my soul, and they're just going to know. Uh, there is nothing that would give that away. Um, it also means we can't look at a set of symptoms and go, ah, this means uh, I was abused. Now, uh, another piece is memories can be repressed. Uh, oftentimes we say, I, I, I forgot about the abuse for a period of time, and it's one of those areas where there's a lot of debate and sometimes skepticism about that. But I'd just ask you to think with me about it for a moment. If somebody can consume enough alcohol, that the things that they do, they just black out and forget. Or if someone can get a concussion, a sporting event or maybe a car accident and they hit their head, and in the trauma of that, there's a time period that they just don't remember then just on the basis of how traumatic sexual abuse is, uh, I think it is very feasible that somebody could go through that kind of trauma and, and, and to block that out um, in the same way that the brain loses other, other sets of information when it's under a, a scenario of high duress, uh, whether that be chemical uh, or uh, physical hitting. Now, I think this third point here is particularly important for us to look at. Uh, according to research, traumatic events appear to be stored in the memory in vivid detail, creating lasting visual images. And I'll draw a contrast here, because this is one of those things that feels very unsettling for many people, uh, whether it be sexual abuse or another form of, of trauma. And I'll differentiate between narrative memory and traumatic memory. 
Now, narrative memory is kind of the way I remember me being a kid playing baseball. You know, there I am. I'm a little kid, oversized shirt, oversized pants, because in Little League, nobody's uniform ever fits. Uh, and, you know, I hit the ball, and I run to third base, and they're all going, first base. So I run across the middle of the field, tag the bag, and I touch it with my hand. Um, and I have all of those kinds of memories, and I see them over there. You know, there's adult me watching little kid me, and I'm remembering it. Traumatic memory impact imprints differently. I don't remember it over there. I remember it right here. I remember it from these eyes. Kind of the, the pinnacle experience of that is a flashback. Um, but it's why oftentimes people will have very vivid memory of what happens within a trauma. Sometimes not just the memory itself, but they can begin to smell the smells and hear the sounds and it, it just imprints from here. Uh, having talked with people who are very powerful and successful and they very much hold their own and can lead people and their peers and when they begin to talk about their abuse they take on this childlike quality um, sometimes they slip and instead of using past tense verbs they it's so real as they're describing it they may begin to use present tense verbs and that's just that difference between narrative and traumatic memory and that's oftentimes why the conversation is completely avoided. Partly because it's so overwhelming. Partly because it makes me feel crazy. And so it just echoes in my mind. And there's never an outlet in which I feel safe or comfortable to talk about it. Now another point about memory. Memories are not always accurate. Again, if we think about abuse happening to a child. Now this is something that they're going to replay over in their mind many, many times trying to understand what happened. The more times we rehearse or replay anything, it, it begins to change. Um, again, as you get older, you see documentaries and movies and those kinds of things and you're asking questions and you don't understand it. Now, it, let me offer this kind of word of comfort here. You don't have to prove anything. This isn't a, a court of law. Um, uh, fifth, details of abuse memories are almost always outside the realm of verification. You know, praise God, there's no video. And, and anybody who was there in the moment is probably not going to be a cooperative witness. And then sixth, while memories are important, they're not all that's important. And, and I like how Diane Lingberg says this. The guiding principle with traumatic memories is the restoration of voice and power to the sufferer. Again, we're not trying to prove anything. What we want is to be as honest as we can be. Not that we're trying to deceive, but just as honest as we can be with what we remember as we remember it. And to be able to rightly name things. That was wrong. That was evil. That's what it means to have voice. To be able to be honest uh, and to be able to rightly name things and not have to say that was a mistake or that was an indiscretion. And then to be able to make choices that benefit our lives. That's what it means to have power. That I have choice. That I can have influence. That if there are things that are healthy and good for me, that I can do those things. And I feel the freedom to do that. Now, oftentimes, uh, people, uh, if they're struggling with memory, uh, they'll, they'll want to know, what can I do to just get all of this remembering out of the way? And I've, uh, I've seen people, usually when I've seen them in counseling, it's been after this kind of experience, where they'll try to use uh, hyp hypnotherapy uh, or some kind of suggestive prayer deliverance ministry to accelerate uh, the remembering process. In my experience, I've never seen that to be beneficial to the individual. Uh, here is what I do recommend in that kind of situation. First, let's establish an environment of safety. Safety to have the conversation, making sure the place where you live is safe. Let's learn what is healthy. 
in relationships. Again, that's something we'll hit on in a moment, but where we where you can understand what are these unhealthy things that I'm doing and what kind of relationships do I have and what's normal hurt and what's not normal hurt. And as you establish an environment of safety and you learn what's healthy, then that will be a moment where it begins to hit you. This wasn't like that. This is what was different. And so as we establish an environment of safety, and we learn what is healthy, at that point we trust God to call to mind what we can bear as we can bear it. And that has, that's something I've seen serve many people very well. Uh, that as they, as they do those things, again, just the life that they're in now contrasts what they knew during the time of the abuse enough that those things that need to be processed uh, come to mind and they're able to do so. Um, we're going to take a break here for about five minutes. Uh, just a couple of uh, words of kind of orienting us here. Uh, again, restrooms, uh, men are on this side, ladies are on this side. Uh, I'll reiterate what I said earlier. Uh, if at any point tonight you feel like this is just enough, uh, this, is, this is what I can bear, and I, I would be better served just to kind of go I want you to feel completely free to do that. Uh, the videos will be up. You have the link for that in here. And so, again, if you need to walk out to your uh, walk outside to get a breath of fresh air and just keep going to your car, um, that's fine. Would love to have you return, though. Uh, that's not me telling you to leave. So, thank you.